0: Man, that's so encouraging, just what Ton said, it's, it's right in Paul's words, right at the beginning of our passage today. And he says, uh, and I'll get to the passage in a second, but Ton, just to encourage you and encourage all of us that the Lord is speaking. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you to write the same things, to remind you again and again and again of the same things is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. I don't have anything new to bring to you guys. In fact, I was aware of that as I was working on this message. This is the same central stuff that we keep coming to again and again and again. But as I worked on it and as I worked through this message and wrestled through these things, it just nourished my soul again and gave me hope. Last night and even this morning early after I woke. (laughs) um, Didn't stay up all night by God's grace. So that's such an encouragement to me as I preach the same old gospel to you guys again this morning. And it's a reminder that you all too need to hear the same old gospel again this morning. So let's do it. Let's go in. We're in this series on foundations. We're trying to look at the very foundational basics of the Christian life. we have three sections here. Being a disciple of Jesus. That's primarily us and me and God. You and God. Then we're going to move into being disciples together soon. That's going to be us and God together as a church family. And then we end with being disciples who make disciples. And that's what it means to be a church family on outward mission together. We have an inward mission. In the middle we'll talk about that. To mature each other. And we have an outward mission. To by God's grace bring in others who need him and don't have him. So that's the kind of the run through of this little mini series while we set aside Romans for a bit. Now, the last two messages, we focused on this issue of disciple, us and God. And in particular, and we're going to do that again today. and, And in particular, we focused on the truth. We've been hammering this truth that to be a disciple of Jesus is this call to come to him and put him first in all of life. It's this intimidating and seemingly impossible mandate that Jesus elucidates in several places. In Luke 9, for instance, he says, if anyone would be my disciple, let him take up his cross every day and follow me. And he gives this promise, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The true life is to be found in following Jesus and laying down our lives every day and saying, Lord, lead me. And we recognized as we went through these couple of messages earlier that this is first and foremost a work of God's grace. We are, in fact, no different than the rich young ruler. Left to ourselves, called to forsake all and follow Jesus in our own power, we would all walk away and we would either take him as a fool or we would despair in ourselves that we have no power in ourselves to follow him. That's really, really a sad ending, but it doesn't end there because as Jesus says about the rich young ruler, with man and women, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so when Jesus shows us that loving him above all things is is right and loving our neighbor as ourselves is right, and we see how we fall short and how impossible it is for us to do that by his grace, we come to him and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I, I am not living how I should and I can't live how I should. Would you please forgive me and save me? And the miracle is that he says, yes, I will. I will fully forgive you of all of your sins and I will put my spirit in you so that you can follow me. And this is conversion. This is the new life. This is the miracle of the Christian life. His Holy Spirit Forgives us of our sins and brings us into the experience of becoming disciples so that by his power, not perfectly, but truly, we can begin to pick up our cross every day and put him first and follow him day by day, moment by moment. But as we said last week, particularly, he doesn't do this by bypassing us as real people who have to decide to follow him. He works with our actual wills, our actual decisions, our actual commitment that happens in us. Remember I said, he doesn't zap us and make us these feelingless robots. No, he tenderly comes to us and woos us and baits us and draws us with his promises so that we can actually trust him. And that's why last week we spent the whole morning, if you didn't hear that message, unfortunately we didn't get it recorded, but I can give you the notes if you're interested. But last week's the focus was on this beautiful promise in Matthew 11 that is perhaps, especially right now, my life preserver. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's this beautiful tension and mystery that as we do seek to give ourselves fully to Jesus every day and to say, Lord, I, by your grace, I, I do put you first. By your grace, help me follow you in all things, love you above all things. Please, we find that he is a gentleman, we find that he is kind. And we find that step by step, moment by moment, he meets us with mercy and grace to keep going. We are real people with real lives, real desires, real fears. And it is a formidable task to put your hands into another's hand each day and say, okay, lead me. But as the spirit enables us to believe that Jesus is kind and gentle and humble, that he's so different than us, we will find rest for our souls. We can risk the chance to step out and put our hands in Jesus because he's kind. And to the degree that we see this about him, we're to that degree freed up to follow him and find his rest. So the Holy Spirit really has to give us that picture of who Jesus is so that we can do that. But when we do that each day, instead of slavery and tyranny to a harsh taskmaster, We find covering. We find gentleness overseeing us. We find kindness leading us. And now where I wanted to head next in this focus on us and God discipleship is to spend some time considering more practically things that we can do to help us walk out practically this discipleship each day, this walking with Jesus. There are some real basic practical meat and potato things that people have been doing for 2000 years that it it behooves us to spend some time thinking about. And these are historically what are called spiritual disciplines. These are things that we do to place ourselves in a position to experience God's grace practices like Bible reading, prayer, prayer, corporate worship evangelism fasting giving to the poor and to the church discipling one another fellowship like community groups DRs etc whatever you want to call the methodologies these are things that we actually do to put ourselves in a place to experience God's grace one of the best pictures i've ever encountered, and and I think I thought of this, and then I read about it, whatever. It doesn't matter, but it's a beautiful picture when it comes to understanding spiritual disciplines. And it's the idea that we, in spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices like prayer, Bible reading, fasting, evangelism, fellowship, we're lifting up the sail of our boat so the wind of the Holy Spirit can blow and move us along toward our journey. We don't move our boat. We don't get ourselves across the ocean. But we also don't do nothing. We also don't just sit there passive and inactive. No, we do things to lift up the sail of our souls like prayer, like study, like fellowship with each other, like giving so that God's grace and its different manifest forms can blow and move our little boat across the sea of discipleship. But before we talk about a few of these basic discipleship habits like prayer and Bible reading again, I want to try and felt the Lord's uh, impression to help us to frame religious habits in the proper way by considering why we should do them and why we should not do them by thinking about why we should do these things and why we should not do these things. As I know from my own experience, and I'm sure you guys can probably relate, it's very possible to do all kinds of religious things and be very, very far from God. It's very possible to do all kinds of religious things, religious habits, and be full of despair and hopelessness, and sometimes, <laughs> this is a little off board, sometimes there's no way to deal with that except wait and trust that God is doing something in that, in that very frozen time. So we have to have a hope for why we're doing these things. What are we trying to get to? It's also possible to do these religious things and be full of self-righteousness about it. And just subtly, increasingly comparing ourselves to our past and thinking about how much better we are comparing ourselves to other people and why don't they do these things and just to have kind of a judgmental attitude start to really eat you up. It's very possible to do these things over and over again and to feel great at first and then to start to feel like you're on a treadmill and that these things have now become your security. And if you didn't have your quiet time, oh, you're disqualified for the rest of your day from fellowship with God or enjoying him. And, and, and we get ourselves weary and burned out. In our disciplines. So there's a lot of things that can kind of get junked up in the the gears of spiritual disciplines. And I really felt from the Lord that he wanted us to stop and say, before we talk about some of these things, let's think about the best mindset we can try to have about things like prayer and scripture reading and what have you. And to do that, I want to consider the apostle Paul in the third chapter of Philippians, where he talks about both how hard he follows after Jesus, but he does it in the most beautiful and freeing and wise and intelligent and I think joy-giving way. And I'm gonna read this whole passage. We're only gonna touch on a few points, but as I looked at it, it's just such a beautiful passage. I couldn't untether it from from the whole thing. So I'm gonna read Philippians 3, verses one through 16. I'm not gonna talk about all of it, okay? Because we'll be here until tonight. But I will um, try to set what I'm going to talk about in the context of the whole passage. So here's Paul. And and just for some backdrop here, I'll, I'll put the backdrops in front here. Paul is really concerned because the Philippians are being pursued by false teachers who are trying to get the Philippians to believe that certain religious pro- practices were required in order for them to be justified declared innocent forgiven in God's courtroom in other words in other words they needed to do these things in order to earn God's favor in order to be justified by Jesus and accepted in his sight they needed to practice certain religious rites essentially the blood of Christ was not enough, they were saying. You also need to be, and in this case, circumcised, which is a religious practice done to the body. And you all probably know what that is. And if you don't ask your parents, (laughs) and if you, if you're older, like me, you're 50 and you don't have a living parent to call when you get home because they've gone to the Lord and you're 45 or 50 years old, I don't know what to tell you, but, um, I'm just teasing. You can ask me. I'll, I'll tell you about it. Or I, I, I don't know how to get out of this joke I'm in right now, but I'm just going to keep going. Anyway, it's a religious practice. And the, the, the threat from them was, if you don't do this religious practice, you're going to be cut off from God. You're going to stand condemned before him. So Paul's really concerned to protect this church and offer these words for their protection. But as he does it, as he does it, there's Even though we're not under the threat of be circumcised or you're 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 not going to be saved, I think we're going to be able to take a lot of wisdom about how to think about religious practices from what he's saying, how to put them in the right setting. Finally, here we go. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, that is in our human efforts, in our human resources. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus let those of us who are mature think this way and if anything and if in anything you think otherwise God will reveal that also to you only let us hold true to what we have attained Ugh, so beautiful this passage What a privilege it is to see the heart of a, of a man blazing for Jesus and to read his words and be strengthened to the Holy Spirit about them. And as I told you, Paul is trying to protect this church. But he brings us wisdom for how to think about our own religious practices. I'm going to make three statements and try to show these statements from the text. Okay, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of the morning. I've got three statements and try to use the text to hopefully help you see them. The first statement is this. Our goal in our spiritual disciplines should be to know Christ, not impress him. Our goal in our spiritual disciplines should be to know Christ, not impress him. In prayer, in reading, in fasting, in fellowship with one another, in showing up to church, and giving to the poor, and giving to the church, and evangelism, whatever it is, our goal is to know Jesus, primarily centrally. Of course, we want to love people. That's implicit. But we're not trying to impress God and prove ourselves in some self-righteous way that just heaps burdens on our back. So, so if you look at the passage today and think about Paul's history you see this pivot point after he's come to Christ. And what's happened is his whole life's purpose has changed from performing religious duties to knowing Christ. His whole life's purpose changes at his conversion from performing religious duties to knowing Christ. Paul starts off in our passage telling us about this grand list of ways that he was religiously impressive whatever it was that made a Jewish man look good in the eyes of other Jewish men and women. And in his mind, what made him look good to God as he conceived of God, Paul had it and Paul did it. And this is his life, as he puts it, in the flesh. And again, by flesh, he means a life lived by his own resources, his own strength, depending on himself, Really, Paul was born into the right family. He was trained by the greatest religious teachers. He lived a life of absolute outward obedience to the external laws of Moses. Pick your favorite scandal-free preacher (laughs) of the last hundred years, Billy Graham, John Piper. I can't think of many more right now, but... Ligon Duncan, Charles Spurgeon—you y- y- know—we think about these people, and 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 they would just, you know, th- be so impressive to walk in here, you know, in the morning. If we, the most articulate, thoughtful, committed Christian walking in with all of of their pedigree, of their seminary experience, of their. 50 years of quiet times. And, and boy, seminary and quiet times are, can be really, really great things. But Paul said that when he met Jesus, he, he was no longer putting his hope, he was no longer standing upon what he could do to impress God. And but listen, I don't mean that Paul never performed religious duties. Paul prayed probably more than any of us, for sure, I would imagine. Probably, perhaps more than anyone in history he prayed. He he lived longer than Jesus. He might have prayed more prayers than Jesus. He fasted. He studied. He did all this after he was a Christian. He even performed certain religious duties, if you read Acts, in some Jewish traditions, doing vows and some, I think there were some haircut things that he did. There were just some things that Paul did after even after he became a christian that were part of his old jewish heritage so he did a lot of stuff but what changed was his reason for doing any of these things because after he became a believer the reason no longer for him was self security it was no longer self righteousness it was no longer performing to be accepted It was no longer bearing the weight of the works of his life. Paul moved from trying to impress God and man by his religious performance and he embraced this one primary goal, to know Jesus, to know him. That's what he means in verse seven and eight. Whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. This is Paul's goal, to really know Jesus better and better, to really glory in him, to really enjoy him, to really be satisfied by being Jesus. I mean, by belonging to Jesus that was his primary goal and listen he loved people we love people best when we love god the most loving god and focusing on him more than anyone else it doesn't suck love away from other people it actually fills us with the power to love other people so paul never loved anybody as well as he did after he gave himself as fully as he could to christ But when Paul met Christ, something awakened in him and he no longer wanted anything more than to know Jesus. Can I just stop for a second and just say, this is crazy. This is crazy. (laughs) Because I know many of your hearts in this room and, and you love Jesus. You may not love him as much as Paul at this point in your walk with him, but you love him. You've never seen him with your eyes. You've never heard him with your ears. You've never touched him with your hands. But you testify to his reality because you just love him. You just know he's there. And you, you actually want him. And if you don't want him, you want to want him. And if you don't want to want him, you want to want to want him. <laughs> he's just stuck in there. And you can't get rid of him and you just want him. And you long for him. Can I just stop and say, that is a bigger miracle than having two arms knocked off, replaced. That is a bigger miracle than being blind your whole life and suddenly getting your sight. Some God you've never ever seen or met with your eyes and your ears lives inside you and you just want him. And you wish you could want him better and you wish you could do better for him, but you just do. And that little seed that's growing in you is never going to die until it blossoms into eternal life. That is going to be forever paradise for your soul. That's where you're going. That's where you're going. That's a miracle. And that's, that's the miracle of, of what God does to us. so, D- Dr. H.A. Ironside says this about Paul switching from religious duties to Jesus. He says this Paul, this is a beautiful quote Paul was not simply exchanging one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies giving place to a superior system, one set of doctrines, rules, and regulations making way for a better one. He had come in contact with a divine person, the once crucified but now glorified Christ of God. He had been won by that person forever. And for his sake, that one person, he had counted all else but loss. Christ and Christ alone meets every need of the soul. His work has satisfied God and it satisfies the one who trusts in him. And so as we consider prayer and bible study and fasting etc we want to pursue these things and do these things for the right reason to know Jesus and to know God. This is the great goal of your lives and my life. This is in fact the very meaning of life according to Jesus. In John 17:3 our Lord says, "This is eternal life that they may know you" the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's easy for us to think of eternal life as a place, heaven. It's okay. It's part of eternal life, though it's going to be heavens and earth together. (laughs) Just to use my little theology degree. (laughs) You thought you were going to be in heaven forever. (laughs) It's heaven and earth together. (laughs) All right. But, but, But we also think of of eternal life as a time period, right? Like a really long time, forever and ever, no more death. And Jesus is like, well, yeah, it, it, it consumes those things. But at the core, what eternal life is really relationship with me. It's really knowing my father and me forever and ever and ever, being full and enjoying and being satisfied and being friends and having fellowship with me. Everything's relationship when it comes to Jesus. So the goal of knowing God and his son Jesus is meant to be at the center of our Spiritual disciplines, and and it it often isn't. We lose sight of it. I'm not saying here's this law that now you have to get right all the time. I'm just saying we got to keep coming back to this. Why am I doing this? To know Jesus, God, please help me know you better as I read this. Otherwise, what's the point? Please let me know you better through this trial. Not just get over the trial, but know you better. Because man, your freedom. Like your joy. I don't want temporary fix for temporary circumstance and to end up just as shallow and dry and immature as I was six months ago, six years ago. Please let me know you better, see you more, fall in love with you more, and I'll be transformed. So if we want to protect this is our goal in life though, if we want to keep knowing Jesus, not performing religious duties not finding our security in our religious practices. If we want to do this, we we want to keep two truths, I think, very close to us perpetually that Paul lays out in this passage. So our first thing, our first statement is we want to do these things to know Christ. But there's two corollary corollary truths that Paul brings in here that I want to jump into here. So here's the second statement today. Our justification before God and you can use other words for justification. Our forgiveness before God, our innocence before God, our safety. I love that word. I put that in there earlier, but I wanted to be close to the text. Our safety before God. Our justification before God, which really is our safety, is secured by the blood of Jesus and not our religious, not our spiritual practices. Our justification before God is secured by the blood of Jesus and not our spiritual practices. Or if you like safety better, put that in there. So what does Paul say here? Let's come back to the passage. He says, what is more in verse eight? He says, what is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We just talked about that. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And then he says this, verse nine, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The words here underlined, the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ is the central tenant, perhaps, of the gospel, the very core of the gospel. The good news about Jesus tells me about this thing called righteousness that we must have before God and that we don't have in ourselves before God. The gospel presupposes that God is holy and perfectly pure in all he does. And listen, this is what Paul said he wanted to remind us of. So even though most of you probably know this down pat, just try to eat it. Anyway, try to eat this food this morning because it's going to be good for you to, to eat it again. The gospel tells me referring to the word righteousness, that God is holy and perfectly pure in all he does. He is truly and perfectly righteousness, righteous. In fact, the only kind of righteousness there is is perfect righteousness. There is either righteousness or unrighteousness. Think about a glass of pure water. It's either pure water or it isn't. It doesn't, doesn't matter if there's like a, a drop of some unsorted ingredient. I think a few weeks ago or months ago, I used bird poop. I don't know. It doesn't matter if there's a drop or there's you know, half a pound in there. So gross. I'm so sorry. But it doesn't matter. It's either pure or it's not. And righteousness is like that. God will never receive us on the basis of our righteousness. And by the way, this analogy breaks down because none of us just have a drop of tiny, insy-bitsy sin in our hearts. Sorry to tell you, our hearts are, are really, in ourselves, apart from God and the new person, our hearts are really bad, the Bible tells us. And so God says, I, I can't accept you, unrighteous person. And so God says, I'm not satisfied with not being able to accept you. I want you. Reconcile to me. And so Christ comes and then the Christian faith tells us that Christ takes our unrighteousness upon himself on the cross. He takes our sins upon himself in, in, in a way that we, we could spend a lot more time talking about. We, we are in Romans. We're going to deal with this more deeply. But the point is God judges Christ in our place for our sins and then because Christ has been judged for all of our sins, past, present, and future, we are declared righteous in his sight. Innocent, blameless, not guilty. He tears up the sin debt and throws it away. The whole thing. All the sins you still haven't committed, he's already forgiven. He's already died for on the cross. He tears up that list, that record against you. And he declares you innocent, forgiven, clean record, paid in full on the basis of what his son has done. Jesus is the Lord, our righteousness. He is my righteousness. He is your righteousness. I don't have my own in myself. I have it because of who Jesus is and what he does. We are counted completely forgiven in God's sight with this righteous standing on account of what Christ has done and not what we have done. And this righteous standing before God, it never changes. You have a better day, you still need his righteous standing. You have a terrible day, you still have a righteous standing before God because of Jesus. And how do we get it? Paul says we get it through faith. That's what he says right here in Philippians. He says the righteousness that is by faith. We trust God to give it to us. Romans 6.22 says the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a free gift given to us by faith. No one can take credit for it. No one can boast that they've done anything to receive it. We completely and utterly depend on Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Faith Is taking God at His word. It's depending on Him and not you. Faith says righteousness in Christ is ours for the asking. And I want you to notice something really important here. Paul, the Apostle Paul, let's think about him for a second. He is probably the most sold out, mature, seasoned Christian you could ever conceive of apart from Jesus. I mean, we might be wrong, but if we had to pick one guy we would think is the most mature, sold out, committed, seasoned Christian, we would probably have really good reason to pick Paul. He's an apostle. He writes scripture. He's speaking personally in this passage of his own deep desire to continue to be sold out for Jesus. And what does he say is his foundation for knowing Christ? After all these years and all this suffering, what's his foundation for knowing Christ? He says, I'm still giving up on the idea of my righteous pedigree, my righteous practices, and I'm standing on the gift of Christ's forgiveness, of Christ's righteousness for me the gospel after all these years for Paul is still the floor under his feet as he sought to know Jesus. It's still what he's standing on. What should that say to us? We should neither be too proud or too scared and too embarrassed or too ashamed or too tentative this morning to say, Jesus, I'm standing on you. You're all I have. The apostle Paul had to do it. We never outgrow our personal need for counting on Christ as our righteousness before God and not ourselves. We never get far on our walk really trying to pursue him seeking to give ourselves fully to him moment by moment before we find our failure and our shortcomings rising up again. If we're really trying to follow him and give our hearts to him, we're going to really find opposition in ourselves. And when we do that, we can either despair about it or just deny it, or we can remember where our righteousness always was. It's in heaven. Jesus He's our righteousness before the Father. And that never changes. And Jesus and the Father want us to embrace this and hold on to this hope. God, give us grace to. Give us grace to be free from the pressure to get it all right. As if your love comes with a price tag. Help us to look you in the face without shame and fear. And know we're secure in your presence because of the blood of your Son. Give us strength to allow you to bless us and nourish us without it feeding our pride or sense of how good we are or have to be for you. So, if we're gonna protect ourselves from turning prayer and Bible reading into a kind of performance treadmill, We want to keep the gospel of our righteousness in Christ and not righteousness by our quiet times, not righteousness by our fasting, not righteousness by our, you fill in the blank, but by Christ, very close. Last one. Number three, the Holy Spirit is our power source for the Christian life and not our spiritual disciplines. The Holy Spirit is our power source for the Christian life and not our spiritual disciplines. Last one. Paul says in verse 10 through 11, Look at that with me. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And you might wonder, why am I saying this passage refers to the power of the Holy Spirit? He says the power of his resurrection. Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. And, And it is that phrase that's leading me to this conclusion, that the Holy Spirit is our power source for the Christian life. It's this phrase, the power of his resurrection. So we've spoken several times in the last few weeks about this mystery of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. I know with summer ending and fall beginning, there's been a lot of shuffling in and out. But, but for those of you who might caught some of it, let me try to remind you that the, the word of God tells us that our life is united with Christ when we're saved by him. I can't explain it perfectly. It's a metaphysical, beautiful mystery. But we're one with him. The Bible says that whoever is united to Christ Jesus is one with him. And and, and this has real implications for parsing out how to think about ourselves. Romans 6 tells us that because we are united with Christ in his death on the cross, our old sinful life was cut off from who we are now. We still sin, but that's not the core of who we are. We're not who we used to be. It no longer has power to tell us, this is who you are. You're this old sinful life that hates God. No, you're a new creature in Christ because when Christ rose from the grave, you were also united with him and born again in his resurrection. His resurrection was the point in metaphysical reality when you became a new person. Ephesians 2 tells us that that God raised us up with Jesus and see us with him in the heavenly places. And again, I, I... we we delve deeper into these messages when we talked about baptism. But the point is, you are new. You are not who you used to be. And you're not done, but you're gonna be finished someday, but you're not who you used to be. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you are a new creation. And in Romans 8, Paul explains the power source of this new creation. It's not an impersonal force. It's a person. It's the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says in Romans eight eleven. If the spirit of him, that's Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you some stuff, and then verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, I can't unpack this whole thing, but what I want you to notice is the Holy Spirit is the power of Jesus' resurrection. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit of Jesus now lives inside you and gives life to your mortal bodies. Both, he keeps you alive right now, and I think... I think he's both talking physically and spiritually, but the emphasis in this whole passage is on spiritual life. It does have a view, if we unpack this more, to the physical resurrection that's coming. But the Holy Spirit gives life to your spiritual life right now. And then you see the capper in verse 13. He says, If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Your ability to grow as a Christian, to make strides as a Christian is the spirit of Jesus living in you. The Holy Spirit who, rose, who raised Christ from the dead is your power source for growing as a Christian. It's, it's a weird thing to say that I was a Christian for many years before I really understood that the Holy Spirit is my power to live for Jesus and not myself, not what I did or could do. I still have to go through that again and again. I get rebroken and rebroken and rebroken. I have no power in myself. It's him. I have to run to him again and again and again throughout the day. Some days that are really bad, many, 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 many times. <laughs> and ask him for help and by faith receive his help. It's not your quiet times. It's not your fasting. Those things positioned you to receive from him, but it's him. You can fast all you want. If he doesn't show up, it's not happening. You can have the best, you know, you can can read four hours of your Bible and cry out to God for four hours. If he doesn't show up, it's not happening. By God's grace, he does show up when we pray and fast and read, usually, So Paul says it's through the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit that he will make progress. And here's how he calls progress, sharing in Christ's suffering and being conformed to his death. Christ calls us to a death. It's where we started this morning, right? Pick up your cross every day and follow me. It's a death to self-will. Just like Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will but yours be done. Just like we prayed this morning, Father, let your will be done. So we're called to live that out, to pray that, to live that. A daily death to selfishness. A daily death to selfishness. will often call for our suffering. A daily death to selfishness. We'll have to suffer against those desires in us that do not want to give up on selfishness. We'll have to suffer through those desires in us that want to be angry and want to be resentful and want to be lazy and want to be lustful and want to be, you name it. And to fight those off, to hold off and to keep coming to Christ, that's suffering. That causes pain to do that, doesn't it? And then there's just suffering that just comes from living in a broken world with broken people. The only kind of people there are in this world. Breaking on you. And you breaking on them. And then there's car accidents and tropical storms and cancer. And and that puts all kinds of pressures on us to live out of our flesh. To despair of God. To give up on him and, and find these comfortable escapes. Addictions. To anger. Right? To phone. To... Images. And yet the Holy Spirit is in us and says, I have power to give you over those things. I'm more powerful than that. I can strengthen you, I can set you free from that. Because I raised. People from the dead. I raised Jesus from the dead over sin and death which sought to conquer him. I can help you. So Paul says the key to living for Christ is not in his spiritual practices though he did practice them. The key to living and growing in Christ is the power of Christ living inside him, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. That spirit, the third member of the Godhead indwelling in all of us is how we're going to make it. It's how we're going to last, how we're going to endure, how we're going to produce fruit and be patient and love our neighbor and share the gospel with the lost when we're embarrassed or scared. But listen, even with the tiniest mustard seed of hope, when we put our hope in him and not in ourselves, not in our spiritual disciplines, these things like prayer and Bible study, when we're putting our hope in him, when we're crying out to him, when we're trying to depend on him, these things, prayer and Bible study and reading and fasting, they become, they become sanctified by that dependence on him. They become more beautiful to him. They become works of faith through which god is pleased to show himself to us God is not against you reading your bible and praying He's somebody put it this way God is not against effort He's against earning God is not against our efforts. He's against our earning before him, our putting him in our debt with our spiritual practices. So as we move into next week's message, getting more concrete and practical, I I want us to try to keep knowing Christ as the goal and putting our faith in the blood and the spirit and not in our practices as as paramount. But I just want to end with this. As we close this morning, just to ask you in light of what we've read today, Think about some of these things. What is it you want out of life most of all right now? Can you ask God to help you have it be to want him most of all? Can you ask God to help you believe that he is big enough to satisfy your big heart of desire your heart that longs and wants and hopes for many good things, many of which are fine and hopefully God will bless you with. But can you ask him to make him again your greatest desire, your greatest hope? That's what you're made for. Nothing else will satisfy you. And then maybe for those of you who, who are trying, and maybe all of us trying to follow Jesus, walking in here with various degrees of condemnation or hopelessness, I just want to remind you, your safety is not in your performance, it's in His blood. Your power is not in yourself, it's in His spirit. Your safety is not in your performance. It's in his blood. Your power is not in yourself. It's in his spirit. Amen.